Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview an expert guest on their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about making youth design education real and the growing changes of educational programs around teaching students how to make impactful change through design thinking. Joining us today as guest co-host is our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete Rakakis. And our special guest is Manny Guardado, the Director of Innovation at Notre Dame Academy in Los Angeles. We're going to learn how they both integrate design thinking methodologies into youth education. Before we dive in, some stuff from the Design Museum. I just want to give a shout out and make sure everyone knows that you can become a member and check out Design Museum Magazine. All of our members receive the magazine. This is our quarterly publication about design's impact in our lives. If you like this podcast, I know you'll love the magazine. It's filled with articles and case studies about design from thought leaders and change makers around the world. It itself is a beautiful artifact of design. Recent themed issues cover the intersection of design and policing, healthcare design, changes in the workplace, and we have an upcoming issue on education. And how do you design education? Ah, the perfect issue to go with this episode. So check it out. You can subscribe or become a member to receive Design Museum Magazine mailed to your door every season, and you'll get the digital edition, which looks great on your smartphone or tablet. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on Magazine. And with that, on to this week's topic, making youth design education real. The thing that I've often found since starting this podcast is how often our guests didn't realize they were designing until they were adults. If they were like me, they stumbled onto the design field by chance or in a brochure. Literally, it was a brochure for me. And then they quickly realized that the skills they developed actually had a name, design or design thinking. So what happens when you teach young problem solvers the keys to making and designing? And what happens when you make it real for them? I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete Rakakis. Diana has over 10 years of experience in museums across the United States and a master's in art history from University of California, Riverside. At Design Museum Everywhere, Diana masterfully combines education with insight to make the design museum accessible and interactive to young people and adults. And she has joined our podcast a few times already, so you'll recognize her voice. We chatted about allyship in the workplace. Uh, I think our first one was infusing equity in curriculum design. Check those episodes out. Those were awesome conversations. Deanna created our neighborhood design project to teach and guide teens on the process of designing solutions to real problems and opportunities in their neighborhoods and communities. I love this project. Her goal is always to empower participants to confidently navigate their worlds. Deanna, welcome back to Design is Everywhere. Thanks for being here. Hey, nice to be back. It's always fun. I want to chat a bit about your background in museums and art history. I don't think we've covered this yet, but I'm curious how design has played a role in the ways you approach problems now. I think it was maybe, gosh, five years ago that I first started thinking of design as a thing. Like I always knew it was a thing, obviously, right? There were design museums. And so I knew <laughs> design was a thing <laughs> truly and 
honestly, only because I knew that the design museums exist. Um, so I knew that was a thing. And it was during that time, I was thinking about how it is that we can do a lot more STEAM learning, uh, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So usually we hear of the STEM subjects, right, which is all of that minus the art. And then STEAM became a huge thing, especially in art museums, as a way to bridge kind of the understanding of our, our core concepts, like things that are very, very important in school, things that always has easy you know, ownership from people. Everyone's already on board with students learning about science. Yeah. Um, and it's always a lot harder to convince people that they should also learn about art. <laughs> and so STEAM was a really great way of infusing creativity into what is often thought of as kind of like rote memorization, problem solving, like math and engineering and all of that. So when that was a huge push in the museum education community of how it is that we could infuse STEAM learning into the things that we're doing in the art museum, that's when I came across design and the design process as a really wonderful mix of what at the time I described as basically like the scientific method if it was creative. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> right? I like that. And so it was, you know, steps that you could learn and follow a method that you could really get behind and, and teach to people. Uh, but that was completely dependent on the interaction between that person and getting feedback, which is, I think, so important to the things that we teach students. So that was when I was first really introduced to design as something that we could use to problem solve how we teach art in steam. Um, and I think it was very, it was a very natural fit. I think people very naturally understand why design is such a perfect steam subject. And so that's really what took me off. Yeah. In working on this project with you, neighborhood design project, which we'll talk about, it often seems like people just didn't have the word, <laughs> you know, they didn't have the label that uh, for this problem solving that they were already doing and they were already connecting engineering and math and science too bad. You know, it can be steamed. No, yeah, no, no, too, too much. much. Too much. <laughs> Let's talk about the neighborhood design project. I know all about it, but I would love to have you tell our listeners what it is and sort of why we did it and structured it the way we did. So, neighborhood design project, which I am going to say upfront, I am certain that between now and the end of this, I will call NDP for short. Yeah. So, just a heads up to all of y'all, that's what that is neighborhood design project. Um, so, neighborhood design project, it's a really interesting program because a lot of out of school programs for teens are, you know, after school programs. We think of them as just like things that teens go to or that like middle schoolers go to after school when their parents are still working or whatever that might be to kind of help pad the time from after 2.30. Uh, but this program, it's an internship. So it's a 14-week paid internship for teens in which they work together in teams, uh, teams of teens, to decide on an issue in their own neighborhoods that they care a lot about and then design an actual like approach and solution for it. So it is a lot of people <laughs> working together to make change in a, you know, a relatively small neighborhood of Cambridge and the teens, we have around 60 teens for each kind of cohort of neighborhood design project. And they're supported by a lot of adults Yeah. because <laughs> uh, we're not just going to be like, Hey, here's an idea, like bring it to fruition all on your own 14 year olds. Like that's not, that's not <laughs> fair. Um, so they are supported by real world designers. So folks who have actual experience in design, they have uh, each 
team has a mentor and our mentors are early career designers, folks who, you know, maybe are right at the end of their design, their design education, or they just started in the workforce, people who are excited to give back. And they really are a next step for the teens, right? Like the teens can look at these people. So they'll be like, Hey, that's me in five years. I can totally do that. Like, where do you want to be in five years? That person, right? (laughs) Um, So there's that. And then we also have our design coaches. And these are like the folks who have been in the field for a while. Like they feel established. They've been doing this for a good amount of time. They're really pumped to help like create the new crop of designers in the world. And they're also super excited to give back to their communities. And so we have um, one of those for each team as well. We have Mm -hmm. nine teams total this year, which is very exciting. So nine different projects all happening to change Cambridge and design it for the better, which is super exciting. And this program is in partnership currently with um, the Department of Human Service Programs at Cambridge. And so that is a whole group of like specialized youth workers where all they do all day, every day is like live and breathe making teen programs for people. So there are, they do a ton of other internships. And so they have their staff also support this program as kind of like the main point people for the program for the teens. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great partnership. I mean, I love so many things about this project, <laughs> you know, not least of which that it's not like you said, it's not just an after school program that it's it's kind of like when I chatted with the teens kind of early on, I guess this was over a year ago, like they think of it as their first job. It, it's exactly it. Gosh, how powerful is that? But the one th- I mean, another thing that I, I just love is that they get to choose their challenges or opportunities. And I think anyone listening might be like, oh, obviously that's so great. But can you tell us why that's so important, especially yes. for teens? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, depending on when you were last in school, especially in high school, you may or may not remember how learning happened <laughs> when you were in high school. And especially nowadays, I'm sure people have heard from one place or another, a lot of it is teaching to standardized testing, especially in public schools, and which is we mostly work with public school students. And so these are like the curriculum is set out for the year. Teachers have all of this work to make sure that students have gained certain skills by the end of the year. And the students are all tested on those skills in order to move forward in grades, in order to get money and funding for the school, in order for teachers to pass and get raises. It's a whole thing. And so what happens is that curriculum is created without much wiggle room Mm. in order to make sure that every single student, or at least the largest majority of students can come through, learn what they need to learn, and then move on. Um, And we're 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 seeing more and more how that doesn't work as well as we want it to. It definitely leaves students behind. And students just quite honestly, like they're not interested. Like when you're a teenager, especially, we all have interests and they're all really cool. (laughs) And you can't pursue them in that kind of super rigid structure that schooling um, is, you know, kind of being needled into at the moment. And so to have the opportunity to not only like create change, which feels huge, right? Like it's something we all want to do. And especially kind of in that like angsty teenage phase. Yeah, make stuff happen, (laughs) right? right? Where you're like, the world sucks and I could fix it if I just had the chance and the tools. And we're like, great, Mm -hmm. here are the chance and the tools, go for it. Um, So that's always exciting. But they basically, they get to work together to decide what it is that genuinely matters to them. And when you do that, it's it's genuinely a different neurological process. Like it's not just like, oh, their interest is kept, like they care more. And so they'll pay attention for longer than 15 
minutes. Like it's genuinely a different neurological process that happens when you are working on something because you care about it as opposed to because you're being asked to do it. And so it just teaches the skills that we're, that they're learning in a totally different way that causes significantly more, you know, retention in the skills that they're learning. Yeah. That's awesome. I remember, um, as we were creating this program together, you know, some of the adults were like, but what, what are they going to choose to do? (laughs) Like, how do we, so I, I thought maybe you could respond retroactively or forward actively um, and tell us some of the challenges that they have taken on either in last year's cohort or in the current cohort. Yeah. So actually they just finished like in the wibbly wobbly time that is podcast recording. (laughs) They actually just did their midterm presentations in my world. So that was yesterday in the middle of April and they were presenting their topics to the community at large and to get feedback so people can you know help them be the best that they can be and their topics are so cool <laughs> they are way cooler than anything i would have thought of as a 14 15 year old i can tell you that much for sure so it's everything from bike safety right so how is it that we make spaces more safe for bikers. So we have two groups that are both working on bike safety, which is very interesting, but they're taking it from totally different spaces. So one group is saying, how can we change the infrastructure to be safer for bikers? And the other group is saying, how can we teach bikers to bike more safely? Mm, Right. And so it's a little, so it's really interesting to see them come at it from totally different perspectives. Um, We have one group that's working on um, the issue of the unhoused. And so how it is that we can get informational resources and more languages to folks who are currently unhoused. So that way, you know, they can have access to the resources that are already available to them which is awesome. We have one group that's very interested in lighting design. So specifically, why is it that some streets in our neighborhoods are so much darker than other streets? And they're doing a lot of research in kind of like the history of redlining in Cambridge and how that overlaps with what it is that they're doing and and really asking hard questions about what are all of the historical things that got us to this moment? And then how can we make sure that we invest in the right communities to get what they need? They're really thinking about equity, to be honest. Us, which is amazing. We have one group talking about student mental health. So how is it that we can improve student mental health through virtual learning, if not for ourselves, because they're kind of understanding the fact that their year's over, like they'll be, their year's pretty much over and who knows what next year is going to bring for them. But they're thinking long-term, let's say this happens again. Let's say there are students who are being forced to distance learn because they're ill or something happens, or there's a family emergency or whatever it is. How is it that we can keep student mental health high and give them the kind of social interaction and everything else that they need through their project. So it's really amazing. The scope I love of the wide range. Yeah. yeah. The wide range is amazing. I'd be curious how you help them identify those challenges, right? Like that's kind of the design process is not linear. I've definitely come to that conclusion, but how do you coach them, help them in that early stage? Yeah. I mean, the first thing we do is we talk a lot about empathy and we talk a lot about what it means to be a designer in terms of how important it is to understand other people's perspectives and look for things outside of your own perspective. And so after that conversation, we have conversations about community and what community means to you. Because when we say we want them to solve an issue in their neighborhood, like I think it's very easy to think place-based, which, you know, is cool. And hundred percent is something that many of them are doing. Um, but especially now that the whole program is virtual for the year, 
community can mean anything. And so having conversations about what community means to them and what are the communities that they want to be working for and working with. And then from there, they're able to brainstorm issues that matter to them. And we walk them through the process of mind mapping and how it is that they can kind of like human scale the actual thing that they're thinking about, right? Like one group is working on like income inequality and we're like, okay, income inequality is huge. Like, that's yeah, it's a, a big, it's like, a big uh, ball there to unwind. Right. Um, but they, you know, but what, what they ended up kind of whittling down to through kind of mind mapping and other things like that is the fact that there are no financial literacy classes available for teens in Cambridge. And so they're going to work together to design one alongside like a longstanding club at the high school. So that way people can casually demystify conversations around finances. And they're thinking about how it is that they can have young adults be the people who teach their parents and teach their younger siblings about financial literacy and all of those kinds of things. So it really is just about like identifying that issue and then breaking it down into its smallest parts um, and then, of course, you know, they have to start doing their own research. And from there, that changes where they're going. But a lot of it is just helping students understand that, yes, the thing that they care about is incredibly important. This huge issue is 100% the kind of thing we want them to be thinking about. And when it comes to actually making effective change, their job is to help figure out exactly what is the tiniest thing that they can do and do that really well. That's awesome. I love this project. You're doing such a great job on it. The teens are crushing it. Oh, they're so crushing it. They're they're so good. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for being here and chatting about it. Yeah, of Uh, course. Really appreciate it. Listeners, check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and you'll see more of Deanna and the team's work on the Neighborhood Design Project. There is a link to Neighborhood Design Project right on our homepage. So go check it out, learn more about it. And Deanna, stay with us and we'll bring your pal Manny into the conversation after a quick break. If you enjoy this podcast, why not be part of the live podcast recording? That's right. You get to see a live recording and ask your questions via Zoom to our guests. Each month, we host a live show, and the edited episode is aired in our weekly program. That's right. In the past, we've had conversations around equity in the workplace, sustainable design materials, and making social impact through graphic design. Our guests have included spoken word artists like architect Ja D. Williams, Thought Matters' Jesse McGuire, and our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and become a member today to attend our next live show. See you there. Okay, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Manny Guardado. Manny is the Director of Innovation at Notre Dame Academy. He received his BA in Art and Design from the California State University of Northridge and is currently in the process of completing an MBA from his alma mater. He is the founder of NDA's Makerspace, the Innovation Lab, and is working to bring more innovation initiatives to the community. Prior to Notre Dame, Manny spent 10 years designing, implementing, and managing educational initiatives and programs for museums, including the J. Paul Getty, Norton Simon, and LACMA. Manny flips traditional learning spaces and adapts the way students learn through the process of design thinking and making. Manny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here with you guys and to to chat a little bit about education and design. For the last two years, you've been working with your school to develop spaces, curriculum that support 21st century learning, emotional learning. Maybe you can explain what that means to our audience. But can you tell me what's leading to these changes? Like what's really behind them? And yeah, what's that shift been like? Yeah. You know, 
Sam, I, um, part of me felt like I took a leap when I jumped into a, uh, uh, full-time school community. I've, I had always worked for nonprofits, museums in particular, and my educational practice had always been informal. So when uh, looking kind of for the, the next area or the next chapter uh, in my adventure, um, I started to look at, at, at a couple of different school communities. Notre Dame Academy is located here in Los Angeles on the west side. And I had heard just wonderful things about them. I did a little bit of research kind of about the, the pedagogy behind their institution. And they're pretty forward thinking. You know, they, they deeply invest in the idea of social emotional learning, right? Or teaching students um, how to be able to handle their emotions and, and kind of use that not only in their day to day, but also in their school activities, in anything that they participate. So just uh, kind of create a, a well-rounded student. And that was the kind of the first hook. I thought, oh, that's a really wonderful approach to uh, treating a child. Um, and so soon after that, I, I sat down with uh, the administration, they were looking to, to develop a maker space. And I thought, oh, this sounds awesome. So after just a lot of conversation, a lot of back and forth, um, we decided that we wanted to create an open space, a, a lab type space that was informal, that could cover STEM concepts, but do it in a way that really allowed them to build 21st century skills. And, you know, I'll probably mention the 21st century skills a few times throughout our conversation, but really the, the idea that we need to prepare our students for the careers of tomorrow, right? A lot of the careers that exist and many that don't even, don't even exist. Um, and I think that that's really important, especially when you're looking at STEM, um, also, when you're thinking of creating educational spaces that are inclusive, that are equitable for students of all walks of life, um, by building these 21st century skills, right, the ability to give students, help students become resilient, have them become independent and innovative thinkers so that they can problem solve independently, that's a set of skills that isn't normally taught in the classroom. And we're starting to see a shift in education, especially in classrooms. Um, with more of a focus on these 21st century skills. Um, and also, again, the idea of building grit, giving students resilience so that they can meet challenges head first. Um, so that was really the, the mindset behind the innovation lab. You know, we've incorporated all sorts of pedagogy to make the space successful. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to, to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So for some of our listeners who've never even heard the term makerspace, maybe you could kind of give us a, a virtual audio tour of the makerspace and what it is. And I also would just love to hear how teachers then utilize it to achieve all those things you just talked about. So a makerspace, um, if I can paint a picture for the audience, uh, imagine walking into a lab. Um, I have a lot of, um, uh, there's a bunch of workbenches. I have power tools in the space. We have a couple of 3D printers. We have all sorts of circuitry and just random electronic gadgets in the space. And the Innovation Lab is a dedicated makerspace. So uh, it's a non-traditional learning environment. We invite students to come into the space and I give them engineering challenges. I'll speak a little more broadly. They're not always engineering challenges. Sometimes uh, they're art challenges. Sometimes they're, everything's kind of related related to STEAM. And I'll, it's STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math. I love to throw the A in there. Design and art is just such an important part of the creative process. So they come in here, and in, instead of getting a traditional assignment, uh, I give them a challenge. Um, I have them build a tower out of popsicle sticks that can support the most weight. Um, and they have to work collaboratively in small teams. Um, and they have access to a variety of different tools. So we go over, we go over safety. 
Uh, they learn how to use all of those tools. And then it's kind of a free range for them to um, use the design thinking methodology to identify a problem, uh, come up with solutions, they create a prototype, and then they test it. And we kind of go through that cycle a few times until uh, they're happy with what they design. Again, and sometimes it could be like little robots made out of simple circuits. Uh, again, other times they're engineering challenges like building a tower out of popsicle sticks. We do a lot of uh, 3D uh, modeling uh, and the students love using the 3D printers. So again, this really accessible open space. Uh, failure is a big part of what we do. Most of the time, the kids really mess up. And for your really hardworking, overachieving students, that could be a little jarring. They're not ready to come in here and fail. And so they come in here, they're given the ability to, to fail and to break things. Um, and that really allows um, for really wonderful learning experiences. Do other teachers kind of build some of their curriculum around this and connect, or is it like a distinct experience for the students? Yeah, there currently this, the uh, space is utilized for a, a handful of courses, some that I teach, uh, others that I co-teach. And slowly over the past two years, what we've been doing is we've been opening up the space for other uh, instructors to use. And so they work closely with me to develop either projects or curriculum where they could utilize the space. Um, and so now the Innovation Lab is really becoming a, an open space for the elementary school students that I work with and also the high school that's on campus. Gotcha. Deanna and I were chatting about how you make design real for students in a project that we have at Design Museum. I'm just curious, your process, right? We saw a video uh, where students were creating like a water filtration project, like a very real challenge. What's your thought process when you're trying to come up with some of these challenges to kind of like make it real for them, but also impart, you know, the skill sets that you're looking to do. Yeah. I love that idea, Sam, like making it real. Cause I think that's the key. You know, if you can make a project accessible and also relatable, uh, then you have buy-in from students. Then they're invested because they can see that particular concept or uh, project. They can see it in their own world, right? Whether it's a reference to something they've seen at home or, you know, in their community. Um, so, I think that for all of my projects, I really start off with open-ended concepts. Um, and what I ask students to do is I I'll develop then a challenge that they have to solve on their own. Of course, I'm there to facilitate and guide the experience, um, but I'm not there to give them the answer. And so really it's up to the students in small teams uh, to work collaboratively uh, to find the solutions that they need, and in particular to discover that design process on their own. Um, I think that you can give them tools, but you can't really teach them the design process from start to finish. That's something that they have to discover kind of on their own. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, how lame would it be just to read about the design process? I mean, just not, it's just impossible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Talk about a snore fest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you have to work it. Yeah. yeah it's it's funny cool. you say that, Sam, because sometimes I'll sit with adults, you know, we've been trying to incorporate like the design thinking methodology into the teaching staff's uh, practice, right? And many of them just struggle with it. It's an It can be a kind of abstract. So I'll sit through a presentation and they'll just stare at me like, well, how am I supposed to incorporate this into my curriculum. And it's not until we do hands-on activities or I sit through them and, and rethink a, an exi a existing piece of curriculum that they get it, you know, and they'll have that aha moment. I think one of the things that we think about a lot when we talk about STEAM learning and how design can really help move STEAM learning forward is the idea of creativity. 
So how do you kind of encourage that creativity in students as they're trying to come up with an answer to a challenge that you've presented them with? Yeah, I think that it, it needs to be an inherent part of the design process, right? I think that cre creativity goes hand in hand um, and it needs to be there from the very beginning of the process. I think that at least in my research and in the way I've seen a lot of educators teach design practices, it's, it's either a, like a step along the way or it's an afterthought and when it shouldn't mm. be, right? It, from the very beginning, it should be, you should allow your students or your uh, audience to, to start to think creatively. Um, and so, you know, we start off, sometimes we just start by making art you know, they'll, the students will be introduced to a concept and before they're even given materials, you know, we just pull out um, some drawing materials um, or I give them some tools and I say, create a random sculpture, you know, get those creative juices flowing. Uh, and then the challenge is given to them. And then they really, uh, again, because they're already locked in that mindset, um, I feel that what they produce is just that much better. In my personal practice, I never separate the two. Like they have to go hand in hand. Um, and I always tell them, I tell a lot of my students, I share this really funny story with them. When I worked at the Norton Simon Museum in Pasadena, it's really close to uh, JPL. All the time we would get uh, engineers and scientists coming into the museum and just, they would wander for hours. Um, and I remember approaching a group of them once and I was like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and all of them were like, oh, we're here for, we're here to be inspired. You know, what we have this beautiful space close to us, and we're here to just be inspired. I believe at the time, uh, some of them were working on one of the um, uh, one of the Mars rovers, and um, it was just incredible to to hear them talk about how important creativity and that idea of kind of thinking freely was. Um, it was just crucial to their to their thought process and their design process. I love that. I love the idea of just kind of it's from the jump, and you just gotta you gotta do it that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's nice to frame it that way. Um, one of the things that we were talking about earlier is the fact that, you know, when you make the project real for students, when it's something that's relevant and something that's, you know, useful to them long term, they end up learning all of these like sneaky second skills <laughs> that you like, you know, like we purposefully teach them, right? Like, oh, yeah, suddenly like you're writing a proposal and now you are practicing your writing or in your presentation, you're practicing presentation skills and all of that stuff. Um, have you ever had, or can you tell me about a time where like a student no noticed, <laughs> like noticed that they had learned something that they didn't expect to come out? Oh, when I caught, when I got caught red handed, right? Yeah. 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 Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I tend to encounter that when students are having like aha moments, because then in their minds, then they start to unravel the process. And then finally it's like, oh, you got me, you got me thinking this way. And, um, uh, but it's usually really positive. Um, yeah, I, we could, um, so I teach one of the courses that I teach, uh, here at the high school, um, is a robotics course and they participate in this program called VEX every year. The, the organization puts out a challenge, um, and they have to use components. If I can describe them, they're almost like really complex erector sets, but they have motors and programmable little brains. And so every year the challenge is put out and then it's up to students, um, teams of robotic students to create a robot that will solve this challenge in the best way possible and they compete against each other. Well, um, you know, I had a, a couple of girls when I first came uh, on board about two years ago who really had like, a, I don't want to say a stiff engineering mentality, but the idea was, oh, they're going to design something and we're going to stick to our schematics. And so as a result, they would run into a lot of um, kind of like blocks 
you know, and it's because they weren't engaging with the creativity. And so um, I remember telling them, I was like, okay, just put the robot aside, just put the robot aside and let's build stuff with popsicle sticks. And they hated it. You know, these are a bunch of really intelligent, you know, STEM focused uh, juniors and seniors in high school. And they're like, oh, what's the point of this? And they were not into it at all. And then out of that, all of a sudden, I'm sitting there with the captain of one of them. And she goes, I got it. I got it. And she runs over to the robot and she starts making adjustments. And so that, you know, the team rallies and they make the adjustment on the robot, made it work better. And, you know, we had a debrief afterwards. And I was like, how did that feel? And she's like, how did what feel? And I was like, you know, that moment, you just had this moment of inspiration. And she's like, yeah, yeah. She's like, it worked. She's like, the popsicle sticks worked. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, yeah, some success then. So, you know, that to me, that was just a wonderful illustration of sometimes you got to, you know, you got to break the structures that are in place. Um, and it's so funny. I feel like nowadays we're constantly talking about that, right? We got to break a lot of the problematic structures in our society. Mm. Well, what better mm -hmm. way to do that than through play? You know, if you can get a student and to play. actually breaking things. Yeah, right? Sam, absolutely. <laughs> Go take something apart. That's how I learned how to tinker with stuff. Same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On that note, I mean, the school that you're working with, it's an all-girls school, correct? Yeah. The elementary school is, is co-ed. The high school um, is all girls. So... How do you take that into account as you're creating all these like STEM and STEAM design projects in that space? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's um, important to highlight the high school has really, um, especially over, I would say the last year has really been proactive um, about engaging, you know, societal topics that I think are really relevant. Uh, nowadays, the school is, is deeply invested in DEI initiatives to make sure that the type of education that's taking place is equitable and that, um, you know, the girls are not only in safe spaces, um, but that they are, they themselves have the tools to create safe spaces. Um, and yeah, and I'll say, I mean, everything from language, even the, the fact that I just said the girls, you know, like that is just part of the the language that we're trying to break down, right? Like, Sure, it is an all-girls school, but should we always reference them as just the girls? No, the students, the students at Notre Dame Academy. And I think that by making those shifts, not just amongst the um, the students, but also the the staff, like the, the school's working really hard to create a, a certain type of culture. And um, all that to say that out of that comes some really important dialogue that students don't shy away from, right? Like. Um, I think that especially with the students here at the high school, you know, we have a lot of conversations about the lack of diversity in STEM fields. And, you know, through internships or we tend to bring a lot of guests on campus uh, to give um, to present to the uh, to the student population on their various fields, you know, th they've noticed, right, that there's a lack of diversity. They tend to see a lot of, you know, white males in positions of power. And so we are actively trying to bring in um, as diverse guest uh, as diverse a pool of guest speakers as possible, again, to broaden their horizons. And so uh, the conversations we have with the students is just, it's sometimes it's challenging, but I think that uh, overall, it's, it's really rewarding and it creates a a wonderful environment, you know, where we're open to new ideas. The students are open to new ideas. They present new ideas. Thinking about these spaces, like a makerspace in a school, I can't help but think about like corporate America and a lot of um, companies that I'm connected with or connected with the museum 
they sort of started by having like an innovation lab, right? As like a separate thing. It's like, we'll just put it over here and, you know, if things will happen. Over time, it seems that then design, if they do it well, design that just come, becomes infused into everything that they do. So I wonder if you've seeing like stuff that you're doing, Manny, like maker spaces and labs as like a step to changing the overall school experience. So maybe that the whole school is a makerspace. I don't know. I don't know if you're yeah, thinking about yeah. that. Yeah, or... I, I, yeah. I love that idea. I think, I think um, that we are actively pursuing some a vision that encompasses some of those ideas, Sam. I think that when I came on board, um, they wanted to kind of push the envelope with what a, a traditional classroom could look like. And so I, I proposed the idea of creating a lab, not just again as a space for students to use, but as a space where uh, teachers could come and experiment with their own curriculum. Um, and I think that that approach then allowed for the beginning of this kind of cultural shift. I think that it's necessary. I think it's necessary to give students spaces like Maker Labs where they're allowed to fail. And they're allowed to fail in a really constructive way, right? Where it's not just failing for the sake of failing, but it's failing to get something out of it, to learn something. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. I think that if we can not only have spaces like this, but then also incorporate some of the pedagogy that's used in spaces like this into every classroom, that would be incredible. With that said, it's easier said than done. I know that, sure. you know, when, <laughs> what, and, and it, yeah, it, it, I think it's, it's been, a, it was a real, you know, I'm a dreamer. Like I came in here, I was like, oh, we're going to change everything. and Everyone's going to use design thinking. And then I sat down with teachers and they're like, well, here's the challenge, Manny. Like, I have this amount of curriculum to cover. I have students that uh, with a variety of different learning needs, um, like, I barely have enough time to cover my stuff. I, I'm also overworked. Like, I have to grade. I go home, I grade, I come back. And uh, I think that being in a school really made me realize, you know, how big those challenges are. And during my time at museums, when I partnered with schools, of course, I heard those challenges, but I wasn't, I wasn't really in them. I wasn't working with colleagues who were facing that day to day. And so now it's really made me think a little more critically about um, the types of tools that I could offer uh, teachers, you know, in particular, my colleagues. So, and what I've come to realize is that the shift has to be something gradual and slow. Like it's not going to happen overnight. You know, this is going to be maybe introducing one project a year until you have several projects that incorporate the di design thinking methodology. Um, or you give teachers, uh, you know, again, you have to give them permission to experiment, to try something out and to fail. Um, and so it's made me think and reflect a lot about my approach, uh, you know, again, coming from informal education and applying my methodologies to a formal classroom, I have to take it slow. And I have to be patient with my audience, in particular teachers. Like, mm -hmm. I have to let them work at their pace in order for us to be successful, successful collaboratively. Manny, thank you so much for being here, sharing your experience, your expertise. It's been great. Yeah, my pleasure, Sam. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, I'm available uh, via email. So if anybody has questions about the, the work that we're doing, um, I'm also going to, uh, I'd love to plug the uh, D school out in uh, Stanford. 
They're a wonderful institution. We went there for training on design thinking specifically for uh, K through 12 education. So shout out to them. They do incredible work and it's really changed the way that we're, that we think about design thinking here at NDA. Listeners, visit elementary.ndasla.org to see more of the Innovation Lab. And we'll post a link in the show notes and check out more of Manny's work. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week, we're sharing our weekly dose of good design, which are our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. So you all know I'm a big gardener and water is extremely important for a healthy garden. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, And I take irrigation and hoses very seriously. So for years, I've had the classic plastic hose winder. I think many of you either had this or had this when you were a kid. You know, sits on the ground, you got a plastic handle. Let's face it, those things are a pain. They're the worst. I mean, they're better than your hose, just kind of like sitting there coiled up, but they crack and they're a pain to wind. What usually happens for me is I unwind the whole thing, do what I have to do, and then I meticulously wind it back up, and then I remember there was something else I had to do with the hose. So I unwind it again. Anyway, it's a pain. So I know I definitely mentioned this brand for a weekly dose in the past, but I recently picked up, the brand is Gardena. It's a wall-mounted automatic hose reel. So this thing attaches to the outside wall of your house. It has a little thing that connects to like the water spigot and it's got 82 feet of hose rolled up inside. And it's like a toy, like, you know, those toys are kind of like pull something and it like wraps back up or like a cord. So you pull it all out, do your thing, and then just pull it a little bit further and then it automatically recoils into the unit. It's so sweet. I love that small mounted, gets everything off the ground, nice and neat. My old hose winder caddy was like sitting there like in a leaky mess. It was like always in a puddle. So this is nice and dry. And yeah, I just can't wait to use it in the garden and all the fun things, even like having the kids run through the sprinkler. It's just like, I use the hose a lot. So garden season's coming up. I'm getting my gear in order. Check out Gardena and this automatic hose reel and we'll post a link. Okay, Diana, you're up. All right, so this is unimportant for the story. However, I am moving. <laughs> and in the middle of my move, part of why we part of why I chose this new apartment is because it has many, many windows. And this has not been true of my previous apartment. So I'm very, very excited about the fact that I will have so many windows and so many plants to put in front of these windows. It's going to be perfect for the spring and summer. Very pumped about that. However, the view mm. is not great. And it like it basically it overlooks the commuter rail. Yeah, that's it. Get a quick wave as I go by. I'll just like if you <laughs> like I'll just say hello. Um, that and you know, there's, I care a lot about privacy. Uh, it's a big thing for me. I'm not used to kind of living in a space where people could look into my windows and all of that. So I'm very excited that I found. I mean, I found this a while ago, but I'm I'm getting to repurchase for this new place, which is these window films. So they're like one-way window films. And what you do is they uh, they go on with just soap and water. They're just like these plastic window film. And they're all different kinds of designs. And the company that I use is Rabbit Goo. So rabbit and then the word goo. The ones that I choose also make every piece of light that shines through your apartment or how home oh. into a rainbow. And so it's just like living Yeah, I mean, that happens, right? Sometimes naturally. (laughs) And you're like, this is such a cool moment, but you're going to have that all the time. (laughs) Right. 
all the time. And that is, that is the old, like, that is the, that's the type of joy I'm looking for right now. You know, it's just like, I am making it happen. <laughs> um, so it's really, really great. It's super renter friendly because all it is it really does just go mm-hmm. on with like soap and water. Uh, and then when you take it off, you just peel it off. Like it, it's almost like those window clings that you'll see around like, mm-hmm. you know, holiday times and things like that. So it's super nice and you can kind of put them up and take them down as you need. And I love them. And I'm very excited about living in my little rainbow palace <laughs> from now until forever. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it was a blast. You made me realize when we first started recording. So I love the timing of this. So last night was the midterm presentations for Neighborhood mm-hmm. Design Project. And this episode comes out the same day as their final presentation. So can you share the date oh, yeah. and some info with our audience about like what that is? And yeah. Absolutely. So by June 3rd, which is the day you may or may not be hearing this, um, at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, the students are each going to present their final projects. So they're going to tell us all about what they did for the past semester and where they ended up. And they're looking again for feedback from the community. So we'd love to have you there to one, just be amazed by how absolutely incredible they are, but also to give feedback and give ideas for next steps. Because what we would love to happen is for these students to take all of this wonderful information and actually try to continue to implement their work past the end of the program. Yeah, so remember to check out our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org. Click on that Neighborhood Design Project link and you'll find more info. Cool. Thanks for being here again, Deanna. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, that's our show. I want to thank Deanna Navarrete-Rakakis and Manny Gordado for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, we are planning our next in-person exhibition. This will be our first in-person exhibition since COVID. So we're very excited. It's gonna be happening August 16th through October 10th, 2021. And it's our Bespoke Bodies exhibition. This is Bespoke Bodies, the design and craft of prosthetics. So it's our traveling exhibition, exploring the craft, design, material, the human body through prosthetics and thinking about the people that use them, the people that design them, and that key collaboration that works to make these amazing devices happen. So there's been so many advances in medicine, robotics, and sensors, 3D printing, that have really transformed what's possible for people with limb loss and limb difference. So I love this exhibition. I'm so excited to bring it to the University of Hartford in August. Check it out on our website and join us. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Easy to find us there. We have an awesome weekly email newsletter comes at you with all the latest news from Design Museum, including upcoming events and initiatives. You can sign up for that right on our site as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. You know we love that orange at Design Museum. For the entire team here, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week.